and I'm going to throw it to my wife, and it looks like a dead animal on the floor. So thank you, Jeff. Uh, that was Jeff's idea, and uh, like I said, I don't mind uh, playing the fool. I just don't like being the fool, right? So uh, I'll be foolish if it, if it helps encourage people. So uh, welcome. It's good to, good to be able to be with God's people again today. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. I uh, have my timepiece in, in check here, and we're going to keep moving because uh, I'm tackling a rather large portion of 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to be uh, studying 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 12 through 34. All right, that's, that's quite a bit, and there's a lot in there. So we're going we're gonna to keep moving. But before we, uh, or as you're turning, and before I get into the, the text itself, uh, you may have noticed, and I don't know if you came in this way, and, and maybe when there's time and we're not uh, uh, ushering people in and ushering people out and all those things, um, you'll notice on this wall, as you're coming through the atrium on this wall, uh, Pastor Joe has spent some time this past week uh, hanging uh, the principles and practices that we value. There's uh, three, three displays out there, and, and we're very thank- I'm very thankful that he put it up there to keep it in our, uh, our memory uh, keep it in front of us on a regular basis, so please uh, uh, take notice of that. I also want to point out, I mean, uh, in today's uh, uh, Ricky the Rat video, they already shared a couple of the principles that we value. I'm going to share a few more, so as we, as we think about uh, the purposes for today's text, I, I'm hoping this will all fall in line for us, but from time to time what we're going to do is highlight uh, these different principles that we value. And so I started off, and I meant to fix the slide in between. Uh, somehow I dropped a slide when I transitioned it from PowerPoint into Proclaim. I, I dropped the slide somehow. And so there's only two that are going to show up, and I'm actually going to share three. Uh, the first one is relationships. Uh, this was already referenced by um, uh, Benji, right, in his video about, he said, you know, ministry is best when it's relational. They mentioned it a couple times in that video, and we have this same principle we value. This is the principle of relationships. Relation, growth happens best in relationships, and we know that to be true. Uh, we know that in this body of believers, when you first came here, whatever that was, you have grown in your relationships with other people. And I'm trusting that those have been redemptive relationships. You've been iron sharpening iron as you go through. And what takes place uh, when those relationships grow is one of these other principles, which is the principle of mentorships. Uh, this is the idea of discipleship and, and how uh, one person uh, influences for the good, for the glory of God, for the edification of the other person. This idea of this mentorship, this discipleship, and, and we say disciples make disciples who make disciples, right? So it, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's been taking place since, uh, since the creation of the church that God's people have been influencing one another to grow for God's glory and for their, and their, for their strength and for their, um, just their, their betterment. And so we, we are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And there's much that's involved with that. But I, I share these two principles to really introduce the third, which I don't have on the slide, and that is the, the, the principle of doctrinal depth. I'm going to challenge us in that area of doctrinal depth today. Doctrinal depth uh, is explained as passion for God pulls us deeper into His Word. You've heard me say this before. You've heard other people say this before. Doctrinal depth. When we think doctrine, it's like, <gasps> no, doctrine is exciting. Doctrine is what we're going to be really focusing on today when we get into the text. And, and when we don't understand a doctrine, uh, and when questions arise, that's what draws us deeper into his word. 
So as you think about these principles, one leads into the, to, to the other. And, and throughout church history, the church has been very focused on remembering key or core doctrines of, of Scripture that we find in Scripture. So one of the things that has been practiced through, uh, through church history is the recitation of the Nicene Creed. Now, I'm not going to have you recite it today. Uh, I'm going to walk you through it. We're going we're to look at the words, and, and we'll do it uh, step by step. But in, in this uh, process of the Nicene Creed, I grew up in a, in a church uh, environment where this was recited. If not the Nicene Creed, it was the Apostles' Creed. But it was the idea every week I would, we, I would recite this, where to the point I literally could recite this without looking at the slides, but for your sake, I'm going to walk you through the slides. I won't get every word exactly right. I'll redo, do it as I remember reciting it growing up. Uh, and, I, and I even made a mistake during the first service and said the words I know versus what were on the slide. But it, was, it, was, uh, it grew me. It introduced me to some things that I would not otherwise have been introduced to in terms of what Scripture teaches uh, and, and the importance of understanding these deep doctrines of God. So as we go through here, I want to, I want to just uh, encourage you, notice the, the number of times core doctrine of our faith is, 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 is listed. And by not reciting this on a regular basis, it's, it's to our detriment, in a sense, that we're not, our children are not growing up being challenged with these things, right? I'm not promoting that we would do it every week, but I think we ought to do it more often than we do. So here's the Nicene Creed, all right? Again, this was uh, uh, written in 325 was the original version, and then it was uh, augmented in 381, and, and this version is basically one uh, that was uh, finalized uh, in 381, um, A.D., and the reason for it is the original version didn't have the words about the Holy Spirit that it does here, not all the words about it. So let's go ahead and, and read this together. Well, not out loud. I'll, you follow along as I read. I believe in one God, the, uh, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So we're, we're seeing uh, theology proper is the study of God the Father. Christology is the study of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we see here that this is introducing us into his person and his work. But th this is the next portion, really. It says, who? This is where we are drilling down a little bit further into what Jesus did for us. And so please follow along. It says, For Jesus, who for us men are our, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So that was the incarnation. And then we have, And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. And ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick or the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. There's a lot of Christology in there. There's a lot of doctrine in there that we hold to, but we don't often talk about. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified, 
who spoke by the prophets. This is attributing the inspiration and uh, inscripturation of, of Scripture, of the Word of God into Scripture that we possess today and we rely upon so heavenly as a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then this next portion is debatable, and we're not going to go into it. Uh, there's some aspects of this that we would have to explain in, in more depth. Uh, but remember, this is written back in, in, uh, in the 300s, right, in the 4th century. And so therefore, what's true back then is still true today, and it's amazing the clarity of the words that they use and the, and the, uh, and the, uh, the, the belief structure that has been in place that is still alive today and still practiced today. Uh, and I, let's see, uh, oh, I, I, I thought I skipped, okay, and I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that's where I left off, I believe in the Holy Catholic, little c, universal, not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, talking about the universal church and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, that's a, that's a one that's uh, packed full of stuff that we'd have to talk about that we're not going to, but notice this next portion, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Notice that, that idea. Here's the resurrection. That's what we introduced two weeks ago as we uh, went through the first 11 verses of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And we talked about Paul. Paul basically explained the gospel. And he said, Corinthians, you've believed this. And part of that process of, him, of, of, of describing what they've already believed, it was the idea that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has happened. And they believe it. But notice this. This is pointing to a resurrection, not of Jesus, but of you and of me and for all those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's two resurrections described in this creed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all those who follow him. We're going to spend the majority of our time today emphasizing the importance of our bodily resurrection. The importance of the bodily resurrection for all those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are resurrected unto life. Notice what it says there. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let it be so. This is is beautiful stuff. In this creed, we see a product of how Christians wrestled with with questions regarding their faith in the early church. And the reality of any church gathering is people disagreed about certain parts of, of certain areas of doctrine, and therefore there was a need to clarify what the Bible teaches. Some people have a real problem with the practice of, of reciting creeds. Uh, creeds have no authority in our life, none whatsoever. But they are a helpful means to identify the authority that's in Scripture because the creeds are tied specifically to Scripture. And are the creeds perfect? No. There's some, there, there's some uh, ways where we're going to agree to disagree or question some things. But Scripture is perfect. It is uh, exposing to us the, the, the Word of God, the thoughts of God, the purposes of God. And so creeds are, are valuable. The Nicene Creed does a great job of wording key doctrines in a way that can be understood by the common person. I mean, seriously, uh, I do not consider myself a scholar, all right? But I know some scholars, and I'm telling you, they are incredibly intelligent, and they know so much about so many different things, or maybe so much about one little area of things. But the Bible wasn't written for scholars. The Bible was written for believers, regular believers like you and me. And these, these doctrines that the, that the creeds help us understand are, are important for us to incorporate into our life. So twice in the Nicene Creed, there is this reference to the resurrection. The first one being of Jesus Christ and the second one being for uh, believers. So what I want to do today is I want to read through the passage of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34. 
I'm going to read through that together. And then we're going we're gonna to jump in and, uh, uh, and understand how, how important this is for us to understand these, this text for our lives today. All right? So join with me as we uh, get into uh, reading God's Word once again. There we go. Starting in verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection... Uh, among, uh, excuse me, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not written, risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen... Sorry, didn't go. Uh, Just to make sure it didn't get caught up, right? One more time. All right. You know, it never helps when you're on the computer and you keep clicking. All right? Don't do that, right? I'm learning. All right? Just take your time. Verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And you uh, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only, see, it's, it's not, okay, I apologize. I'm just going to read it off the slides because I don't know what it's going to Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This didn't happen first service, right? It went flawless first service, right? So can you control that or do I, can I, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing this, but it's, it's bogging down in something and it's going to be a problem. Yeah, it's not, it's not turning. I'm just going to keep reading, folks, because I, I don't have time to, to waste with technological difficulties. If you can get us caught up, great. If not, we're just going to keep reading. Uh, open up your Bibles if, if you haven't already done so. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Uh, Excuse me, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. 
For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. All right, so apparently they got it caught up. So uh, can I grab it? Can I control it now? I can. Wonderful. All right, so this is a large passage. There's much involved in there. And and Paul, in his giftedness of writing, he can get kind of wordy and logical. And and so I'm going to try and ease it out. We're going to walk through here, uh, through this uh, big idea in three points. Uh, But the big idea that I want us to consider today is simply this. Our future resurrection, the one that is reserved for us as believers in Jesus Christ, our future resurrection gives us gospel-centered purpose for living, right? It gives us gospel purpose uh, for living today. That's, that's the idea here. Today is what matters, is it not? We, we are engaged in, in studying these great doctrines of, the, of Scripture, but if we only look at them as somehow for other people, or if we only look at it as, as historical events, and, and we have to understand what God's Word teaches is applicable for us today, and that's true of the resurrection of Christ, and it's true of the body of the re- resurrection of all those who are in Christ. So we're, we're going to look at this as in, in three steps, right? The first step is verses 12 through 30, excuse me, is uh, verses uh, 12 through 19, all right? Notice this. The first uh, part of what Paul is going to explain is that failure to believe in the resurrection of the body takes the good news out of the gospel, all right? He's going to be passionate about that as he goes through. Secondly, we're going to see that the failure to believe the resurrection of the body takes the meaning of life out of living. Now, notice the verses there, if you don't mind. I went from 12 through 19 to 29 through 34. The way Paul has structured his text would be to, he sandwiched the positive, the main point, in the middle of a bunch of negative consequences if there's no, uh, if there's no resurrection. Rather than do it that way and, and end on a negative note, I, I, I'm going to deal with all the negatives in order. I'm going to go ahead and deal 12 through 19 and then 29 through 34 and look at all the potential negatives. If there was ever uh, not a resurrection, right? These, all these things would be true. And then we're going to finish with the focus of on the resurrection. Belief in the resurrection of the body gives Christians hope that is found only in the plan of God. We are in desperate need of hope, folks. We are in desperate need of understanding what God's purposes is for us. Now, I want you to understand, as we, as we come week by week, and we're preaching the Word of God, and we're sharing the gospel, we are often short-sighted Christians. I'm sometimes a short-sighted preacher. And I, we preach as if somehow the veil of death is the end. Have you noticed that with the, the songs that you listen to on the radio, the songs we might sing, or even the passages we preach? How often do we hit on the positive aspects of the bodily resurrection of believers? We just don't. We, we, we are short-sighted in the sense that we look at life and we say, Oh, I am so ready to be with God, right? Let me go through the veil of death. Okay, I'm dead. Whew! I'm good. I'm in God's presence. Because we know, Paul says, to be absent from the body, death, is to be present with the Lord. Praise the Lord. But there's more. There's this bodily resurrection that's going to take place. And I don't know, there are some people that may have never, under, they may have never understood this. That we, that we don't spend an eternity in, in spirit with God. We will spend eternity with God in a physical, redeemed body. A resurrected body. Jesus has a resurrected body today. 
And when we, we will be like him. We're going we're gonna to look at these passages more next week. But uh, I'm saying for today, we have to understand the beauty of the resurrection is that the resurrection of us, of, of believers, is that we will experience uh, all that God has for us to experience in his plan. And there's great hope in this as we go forward. So we'll just go through and, and, and start with this first, uh, this first uh, section here. So I don't have all, it all in slides. You can just follow along if you would, starting in verse 12. So we see failure to believe in the resurrection of the body takes the good news out of the good news. All right? Uh, it's, it's very plain. So one of the things we have to look consider is Paul is not confronting the, the, Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians. Say that ten times fast. He's not confronting them with their failure to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's confronting them on their failure to believe in the resurrection of believers in Christ. He says in verse 12, Now, if Christ is preached that he has not been raised from the dead, excuse me, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, which he, uh, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he's, he's right up front. Paul's already acknowledged that the, these Corinthian believers in verses 1 through 11, he commends them. You've already believed in the resurrection of Christ. But he's saying there are some among you, this, this group of people that we cannot fully identify. Uh, certainly we don't know their names. Paul does not name them. But there is this, this group of people within the, the Corinthian church that believe and are pro, uh, uh, promoting this idea that there's no bodily resurrection of the dead. There were some within the Jewish community that believed this. We know that there were Sadducees and Pharisees. Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul used this to his advantage when he was brought before the Sanhedrin and they were all focused on him. And he said, I stand here because of the hope I have in the resurrection. And, he, and, and what happened? The Pharisees and Sadducees started going at it. All the attention was on that. And he won half the audience to him, to his side. And, and, and we can read that as we uh, continue on in the book of Acts uh, at some point in time. But see, we, we see that there are people who believe in it and don't believe in it. But there were some who didn't believe, and Paul, we know Paul is talking to them, uh, because when we see in verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. All right? So some were denying this future resurrection of Christians, and he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to this earth uh, incarnate, right? That's what the, that's what the creed said. He incarnated. He, God became man. And he lived a sinless life, a perfect life. And then he died on the cross to pay for our sins, not his own because he was sinless. And then he was buried and he resurrected and he, uh, and, he, and he ascended into heaven. If that's what we consider the gospel, what Paul is saying here is if there's no resurrection of the dead of believers, then there's no resurrection in Christ. And if you don't have resurrection in Christ, you don't have good news. This idea of no bodily resurrection takes the good news out of the gospel. And, and notice, I want to notice some parallels here. There's two sections in, in verses 13 through 19. The first one is, starts in verse 13. It says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Look at verse 16. It's the second section. He says, if the dead not rise, then Christ is not risen. It's, he's, Paul is repeating himself because he's trying to make a point. The, the resurrection, somehow the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is integrated, is, is united with the resurrection of believers in such a way that you can't separate the two. If you say Christ is not risen, you don't have the gospel. 
But if you say believers, those who believe in him, are not resurrected, you don't have the gospel. That's what he says in both those verses. If there's no resurrection, Christ is not risen. The good news is not there anymore. From Paul's teaching, we understand that the resurrection of Christians uh, in the future is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You can't separate the two. Verse 14 begins, actually, verse 13 gives us that first consequence. I don't have them listed on the slide, but notice the first consequence to no resurrection of, of a bodily resurrection of believers is that Christ is not risen. The second consequence is that the preaching is empty. The third consequence is that their faith is empty. And the fourth consequence is that they are found to be liars as witnesses of God. So look, just we'll walk through those just briefly here. All these consequences, if the bodily resurrection of believers is not true, then the good news is not, it's been taken out of the gospel. If the good news is taken out of the gospel, there's no reason to preach because the preaching would be empty. I would be standing up here promoting absurdity. If there was no resurrection from the dead, and I'm saying, listen, Jesus Christ resurrected, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, I'm, t- I'm lying to you. See how it's all integrated here? Paul's saying, this is not what we're about. Negatively, if it was even possible that there was no bodily resurrection, all this would be true. Our preaching is worthless. Your faith, worthless. We are found to be liars because we're saying, he says in, in uh, verse 15, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, he did not, uh, if he did not rise. So Paul is taking this approach, with the, dealing with all this negative approach, right? He's dealing with this from that standpoint. And he's going he's gonna to transition into a, a positive approach and then more negatives later. But we have to understand that he is conveying a very clear message. The bodily resurrection of believers matters. It is a doctrine we must believe. And it is something that should impact our life today. So the bodily resurrection of Christians is foundational to the good news of the gospel. Paul lists the consequences, uh, as, as we've already mentioned. And then he goes on in verses 16 through 19 to list three more consequences. So all those consequences we just talked about, they're found in, those, in uh, 12 through 15. But when we get in verse 16 through 19, we see that it gets worse, if we can say this. Notice in 17, uh, he says again that your faith is futile, right? Futile, futile. He says in verse 14, your faith is empty. There's a lot of parallel thoughts between those two, those two verses. But the, here's where the worst news gets worse. He goes, if there's no bodily resurrection, you are still in your sins. There's no, been, there's no accounting, right? There's, there's been no uh, uh, taking care of all the sins. The good news of the gospel is that all the sins that we committed in our entire life, whether we get saved at 4 or, or 40 or 140, no matter when we get saved, no matter when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that His work on the cross paid our sin debt, right? When He died on the cross as a sacrifice for sins, when we come to faith in that, we're taught that in Christ, all those sins have been washed away. Behold, all things. We're, we're clean, right? We're whiter than snow. Well, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't, rec- didn't uh, resurrect. And if he isn't risen, all those sins are still in our account. We are still dead in our trespasses and sins. He says in verse 18, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Though it gets even worse. Those loved ones, those ones that have died who had faith in Christ, if Christ is not risen, right? If there's no bodily resurrection and Christ is not risen, all those people who you know and love perished. 
They're experiencing the consequences of their sin. They're in an eternal torment. They're in hell. That's not good news. So this doctrine of bodily resurrection, it takes the good news out of the, uh, out of the gospel. But understand, let's spin it all around just for a minute because I don't want to depress you, right? This isn't true. Paul is saying if. It's hypothetical. If, but it is true. And so it is true. Let's consider this. Christ is risen. Our preaching has purpose. Our faith is valid. And, and we are no longer in our sins. And those that have fallen asleep before us are in his presence. That's the good news. As we go through, and I will skip to this next section in verses 28 through 24 to, get, to cover more of the negative. Um, um, let's just jump there for sake of time. We see in verses 29 through 34 that failure to believe the resurrection of the body takes the meaning of life out of life. Now, this is the portion that is very difficult to cover, um, but it's, it'll be fun nonetheless. And uh, I'm hoping you'll enjoy it as we go through it. Uh, Failure to believe in the resurrection of the body takes the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? I asked this question a couple weeks ago as we started our Wednesday night study uh, in Ecclesiastes. What is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? What's our responsibility? Vanity of vanity. All things are vanity. But when we jump to the end of the book and we see that it's very clear, to to conclude the whole matter, you know, uh, obey the Lord, keep his commandments, right? um, Let's paraphrase. Join us on Wednesday nights as we go through this. It's, It's a fabulous study. I'm having fun with that too. But think about this. That's a very philosophical question. What is the purpose of life? And there are people asking that question all the time. But it's kind of a a scholastic question. And again, I said scripture is for the regular folks in in the pew. And so uh, let's let's ask it this way. What gets you up in the morning? Think about this. If we're talking about the meaning of life, the way we live out our life, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Most of you are probably like, I don't want to get out of bed in the morning, right? It's especially when? Tomorrow, all right? Monday. Oh, those Mondays, right? Unless you have Mondays off, right? Um, but listen, this idea of meaning of life, let's just approach it from what, uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning. In verses 29 through 34, Paul gives us two illustrations uh, to help people, to help the people, the Corinthians primarily, understand the point he is making. The first illustration speaks about what gets other people motivated, not Paul. Uh, the second illustration speaks, speaks about what motivates Paul to do what God has called them to do. Uh, the first illustration must have been really helpful for the Corinthians, but not so much for us, folks. This is uh, the famous text of Scripture. Let's go ahead and read it. Verse 29 says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, how many, I don't know how many sleepless nights you've had because of this verse, right? What does this mean, this idea of baptism for the dead? It seems a little bit about a left field, and that's why I'm saying Paul is creating his argument, and there's some aspects of what he's communicating that we will never fully understand. But we can understand it in part, and so let me share a few things about this particular verse. First of all, it begins with the word otherwise, and the reason I highlight that is because, remember, I've taken this portion out from the—it's going to build on the portion that we haven't even covered yet, all right? So verses 29 through, through 34 are connected to the previous section. The previous section is all positive. These are more negative. So that's, that's again, just to bring that to your attention. Uh, so, but it's a very difficult uh, verse to comprehend. So the question is, does Paul agree or disagree with the practice? 
Uh, maybe you've heard someone speak about this. Now, there are, there are religious groups that believe in the practice of baptism for the dead. And I'm going to say right, off the, right, off, right out of the gate here on this topic, don't practice baptism of the dead. All right? It is referenced in Scripture, but only here. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament, but right here. Even when we talk about the Scripture reading that we read earlier out of Psalm 16, that Scripture was, gave indication that, that there was an understanding of resurrection even in the Old Testament. Right? I will not leave. Now, specifically, it's talking about Jesus Christ, right? You will not leave my soul in Sheol. Right? It's the idea of the place of death, the abode of death. I, I'm not, I'm, you're not going to leave me there. There's going to be a coming forth from, from the grave. And so there was this idea within even the Old Testament that there was some aspect. That, why do you think the Pharisees came to believe in the resurrection? Because they were based upon Old Testament teaching. But for us to understand groups of uh, the people that would practice this today, no. You cannot have a doctrine. You cannot have a practice and say it's biblical when it's based on one verse that is totally not understood. All right? So does Paul agree or disagree with the practice? It is impossible to know since we do not have any other information to help us understand what the practice was all about. Uh, this practice is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and there are some creative opinions about what these words might mean, but they all fall short because we just don't know anything about the practice. The fact that Paul mentions the practice but neither states his approval or disapproval most likely means Paul was not interested in the practice as much in the, as in the absurdity of those conducting the practice if there was no bodily resurrection from the dead. He's saying, listen, for this group of people that are in the Corinthian church, it was definitely a thing in the church in Corinth. There were people somehow practicing baptism for the dead. And it, and it may not even be the means by which we would understand it. Because again, all these different ideas... They're out there. Some have merit, some don't. But uh, that's, that's, that's besides the point. Paul is making a point. And that is, he's saying, for this group, whoever they are, right, it's absurd for them to even do it if there's no resurrection. Right? This is why that first illustration that he uses that really doesn't compute to us, and I spent too much time already uh, uh, explaining it. But one indicator that Paul did not practice baptism for the dead and, may, and the fact that he may have been actually distancing himself from the practice is the fact that in the verse, he says, what will they do? He doesn't say what we do. And at the very end, he says, why then are they baptized for the dead, not why are we baptized for the dead? This is not something we're supposed to understand that Paul practiced, or it was definitely something going on in the church in Corinth, but not, to our knowledge, any other church that we know of. Um, but whatever it was, Paul just skimmed right over it, and that's one of those questions when we get to heaven and we talk to Paul. Paul, what did you mean? And he can fill us in, right? Uh, so now, now, what the practice was for, it is significant. Uh, its significance was tied to the reality of death, and that's, that's what we're in. We're in this context of death throughout this whole section, because without death, you cannot have resurrection unto life, all right? So the second illustration is more helpful for us, as we understand, uh, as understand his point. He says in verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul is saying in this illustration, he, he's saying, uh, take my life as an example. 
He says, take my life as an example. Uh, I am standing in jeopardy. Actually, he says we. So there are believers. There was persecution for Christians in in Paul's day. And he's saying, why would I stand in jeopardy every hour? He says, listen, I die daily at the end of verse 31. He says, listen, if the dead do not rise, what advantage is it to me? There's no advantage to me to, to live the life that I'm living if there's no resurrection from the dead, that's making this point. Failure to believe in the resurrection of the body takes the meaning of life out of living. It's true of Paul. It's true of us as believers. What is our purpose in life? It's to honor God, to glorify God, to, to spread the gospel, to, to, to live out the gospel and to spread the gospel wherever we may go. Life for Paul was filled with purpose. His purpose caused him to risk his life for the benefit of others. That's what he says. He says, by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying, listen, you are the evidence of my ministry. I can boast that you have come to genuine faith. And I'm willing to die daily. I'm willing to, to jeopardize my life. If, if, I can, if I've even, it says, listen, in verse 32, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what he's saying there is, is believe that it wasn't a physical uh, wrestling or, or um, uh, fighting with actual animals. Uh, it's figurative language because Paul, as a Roman citizen, would not have experienced that. And the odds are he wouldn't have survived it either. Uh, so, uh, unless obviously, you know, Daniel aligns then, I get that. But we don't have any of those details. But what he's saying is, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus. In other words, he has experienced persecution, opposition. He's saying, Why? it's not worth it. If there's no, if there's no resurrection of the dead, it's worthless. My life has no meaning. I have really nothing to live for, because that's what he concludes. He says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, because tomorrow we die, and that's it. Now, there are people that have that perspective of life. I know some of them. You may know some of them, right? The, the, the famous statement, see you in hell, right? Ha, 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 ha. They have no idea what they're talking about. It's, it's a good tagline for a movie, right? Uh, I'm macho. I'm, uh, I'm going to live, you know, I am the ruler of my own fate. No, you're not. And no, they're not. They are not. The, the fact is, life has meaning. All these negatives, once again, if we spin them around positively, can we say this? Uh, uh, Paul was saying he, jeopard, he was standing in jeopardy every hour. He was willing to die daily. Uh, he was willing to face opposition, and, and he could not allow himself to fall into the habit of saying let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die because he understood that life is eternal in Christ and we don't just die and experience God for eternity in spirit we die and we experience him spiritually and then then Jesus Christ comes back and all things are dealt with we're going to talk about that in the next section and it's and it's beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ is full of hope and meaning If there's no resurrection of the dead for Christians, then Paul says, then life has no meaning. So go ahead and live the way you want. But the reality is, as we get into the next portion of Scripture, the next section, he says says very clearly that the resurrection is true. Belief in the resurrection of the body gives Christians hope that is found only in the plan of God. I know we are in desperate need of hope. We are in desperate need of coming alongside the Word of God and having it speak into our lives so that we know how to live today. We know how to live tomorrow. 
And when we're, when we're rubbing up against uh, shoulders of uh, people that we know and they do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can take the truth of bodily resurrection and encourage them. So and now that we understand that, that life for Paul and, and what... Uh, did I skip? I skipped a whole two verses. i got to go back. All right, forgive me. Sorry, my notes must have been out of order. All right, verses 33 and 34 are, are wonderful verses. And, and it's a concluding thought to that section. It says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul, as he's confronting the Corinthians, and that's what he's doing. There are some within the church that were believing this false doctrine. But even worse, there were some legitimate believers in the church allowing them to do so. So as he confronts them, he confronts them with five, in five ways. He says, first of all, they were being deceived. The idea of verse 33, the very beginning there, do not be deceived, is stop being deceived. Stop it. He, and then he quotes one of the, one of the uh, secular authors of their, of their day, or, or a very common saying, notice the quotation, evil company corrupts good habits. It's true. It's true for Paul. It's true for the Corinthians. It's true for us as we engage in our uh, parenting. We try to help our, our children understand Make good friends, those friends that will, that will support the, the, the Christian lifestyle that, that, uh, that honors God. But he says, listen, uh, they, stop being deceived. And, and notice, you know this truth, this worldly truth. Even unbelievers understand this. But he calls them to respond the right way. And he says, awake to righteousness. Why? What's the alternative? Do not sin. He goes, awake to righteousness. Stop sinning. What specific sin is he talking about? He says, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There were some people within the church that somehow had gotten within the body who were not genuine believers. Because remember, if you remove the resurrection, you don't have the good news. So there were people that somehow had infiltrated the church and they were promoting this false doctrine. And Paul's saying, stop it. Stop sinning. It's to your shame that these people have no knowledge of God. They were not practicing what we call regenerate church membership. We had a church membership in the first, uh, first service. Allie joined church today, and she gave her testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, and that she had been baptized by immersion, proclaiming her unity in Christ, right? We know that to be true. And we have many of those, uh, those, uh, those stories of people coming to faith and joining our church, but there were some that had come in, and they were wolves in sheep's clothing. And folks, we have to be on alert with that even in our church today. But that's one of the reasons that we can appreciate the, um, we can appreciate the, the, the creeds of the past. It helps us identify those areas that we must all agree on. So now going to the next, uh, the next section, uh, we see again, and I'm, I'm running out of time, so we've got we to go. Belief in the resurrection of the body gives Christians hope that is found only in the plan of God. The plan of God is beautiful. Uh, sorry, we'll go back. So in verse 20, Remember, this is that middle section, and he's contrasting it, that word but. And he's saying, with all the negative stuff that I can say about no resur- if there's no resurrection, the fact is in verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead, period. It's true. He's already said in the first 11 verses, there were over 500 witnesses, of, and Paul's one of the witnesses uh, that, is, that has seen Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
he, he, he explains that, that Jesus is the first fruits. That first fruit idea is that at harvest time, you would take those first samplings of the harvest and you would offer them, and you would sacrifice them as, the, as an offering to the Lord. You're, the people would be saying, Lord, we recognize you have provided this blessing to us. We offer this to you saying th- uh, as, as a way of saying thank you for all the rest of the harvest that's going to be coming in. And it, that, what's true of the physical harvest is true of the harvest of souls. Right? God is saying, that, the, the Word is saying that Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He's that first part of the many that will follow. He begins by responding to consequences. He, he, he proclaimed in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, if this, In this life only we have hope in Christ. We are men most pitiable. And he says, No, but now that Christ is risen. We're not men most pitiable. We are those who have experienced. We are part of the fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But then he, he, he builds upon that. And he says in verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. He says, listen, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection is an important doctrine to believe, but let me tell you how it fits into the plan of God. He says, first of all, man, sin came by death, right? Excuse me, for, by, uh, for since by man came death, right, through Adam, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Uh, I don't have time to go into the Romans 5 and Ephesians 1 passage that would teach this, but what he's saying is every person who has ever lived is a son of Adam. We are all Adam's children. We are all in Adam. That's why we have this sin nature. But he says only believers are in Christ. As by man sin came, so by man came the resurrection of the dead. This is also pointing to that, that, uh, the doctrine in, in taught in the creed that the deity of Christ is essential, but so is the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's essential for us to understand. For as in Adam all die, and that's true, all but Christ, all die because we are in sin. But notice, this is not preaching or teaching a universal salvation when it says, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Our emphasis is in the wrong place. Right? It's not that all shall be made alive. Oh, universal salvation. No, it's all that is quantified. It's so, so, even so, in Christ, those especially important words, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Who's in Christ? All those that have come to faith in him. So as we consider this, Paul helps us understand how our bodily resurrection fits into the plan of God. He says in verse 23, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, we've already covered that. He's the first one to resurrect from the dead. Afterward, those, afterward, those who are Christ that is coming, that's us and every believer who's ever lived, right? Then verse 24, he says, then comes the end, the telos, the purpose of all things. This is not just the end of time or the end. This is the, the complete end of all that God had planned. And so he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. We know from, from Matthew 28, verses 18, that all authority has been given to Christ, right? It's based upon that that he can give the Great Commission to make him mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We, we know that to be true. So, so all this authority, what this is explaining is that all that authority that has been given to Christ all of it will be come together and all of it will be laid at the feet of God the Father. He says, but it, that hasn't happened yet. 
He certainly has all authority, but there are still enemies that need to be vanquished. And that's verse 26. It says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. There's the good news, folks. The good news of the gospel is that, that death is destroyed. It no longer has dominion over us. It no longer has power. This is the good news of the gospel, that death is swallowed up in victory. But that's the focus of next week. All right, Death came into the world through sin, but it was never part of God's eternal plan. The bodily resurrection is important for us to understand because and, and just dying and going spiritually to heaven is not good enough. God's plan was to, is, is to have the end be the, like the beginning. Perfection. Verse 27 says, for he, uh, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, this is the tricky text, and we've already read it once, but I'll just read it again. It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. This is talking about God the Father and God the Son. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, the Father, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is, this is the telos, the, the end, the, the goal of, of all the plan of God, is that everything will be perfect. Death will be destroyed. Sin is destroyed. There is nothing left but life. And it's life in a physical body, a resurrected body, a physical body. And that is what we will enjoy for eternity. We're not just people floating around on the clouds, right? We're going to be in God's presence in physical body. And that should give us hope, right? Because the belief in the resurrection of the body gives Christians hope that is found only in the plan of God. This is all part of plan A. This is all going to take place. And it should be an encouragement to each of us to know that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have a future. A future with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who's in bodily form right now, and a, and a, and a uh, future that includes one another. So as I conclude, let me just say this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is all true of you, all the positive stuff. The negative stuff Paul said was hypothetical. But the, true is, the, the truth is there is a resurrection, and all that's contained in that is secure for you in Christ. But there are many who do not know about the resurrection of Jesus or of believers. And we need to be busy about encouraging people with the truth of the gospel. We need to live this truth out and it needs to impact us every day, but it also needs to, needs to be shared with others so that the kingdom of God uh, will continue to grow as God has planned it to grow. All right, let's, let's pray. I'm out of time. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had today to engage in some, some uh, doctrinal understanding of, of your word. We thank you that we have come to life. Your word says, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have, son, have the Son does not have life. There is, there is only two realities for people. The reality of a bodily re resurrection for a, and a body, an eternal body, uh, a body for eternity, and those that will, honestly, there'll be the resurrection of the dead. That's not taught in this passage, but it is taught elsewhere. And that, that bodily resurrection of the, to death will be eternal torment. Father, it is not something to make light of. It is something to fully focus upon and understand so that we might help people step from death to life. May you do your work in the, in the lives of your people, Father. Thank you for this encouraging truth. Thank you for the hope it gives us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.